All right, church, it's good to be back with you. Welcome to an online church service here at ABF. Uh, I got to tell you, in a year that seems to have more twists and turns than like a murder mystery, uh, I take great comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ was the same at the beginning. He's the same today. He's the same for all eternity. He's still working miracles. He's still restoring souls. His grace is still flowing from heaven. We serve the same Jesus now, today, and forever. Amen? Let's sing about it. Here we go. Team. 
How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness Your loving kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul The work is finished The end is written Jesus Christ, my living hope Who could Claim on me 
Well, greetings, church. I pray you're doing well, and I'm so thankful for our worship team and opportunities each week to uh, go before the Lord and just celebrating His character, His kindness to us. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. Well, I just want to touch on just a few things happening in our church family. First off, uh, for you to stay in touch with us during this season, one of the ways that we really consider a privilege to connect with you is through prayer. And uh, you can text us anytime during the week at 97,000 uh, with any prayer request. That just goes directly to our staff, and uh, we're committed to lifting up any needs that we can during the week. Well, a few other things going on. First, our week ahead is really uh, resembles a, a typical week now at our church with things really for everyone on our campus outside, whether it's a WANA uh, program meeting outside, whether it's our junior high, high school, young adults. Uh, we have a men's Bible study, uh, ways for the ladies to connect through Bible studies. We just have a lot of options. The best way to stay in touch with all of that is uh, just checking out our website. We have plenty of information and details there. A few things I wanted us to start marking our calendar for in the month ahead as we're going into the uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas season. One of the things we've tried to do for a number of years is during uh, the, the fall is to help uh, raise or uh, do a food drive to bring in uh, non-perishable gifts for uh, Mana's uh, food bank. And so we're starting that at the end of the month, October 27th in Awana. And along with Awana, we're going to partner in services here uh, where you can drop off any Sunday, November 1st, 8th, or 15th, uh, non-perishables, just as a way to really support some of the needs in our community. So that's a, a one tangible way. And another thing that we continue to do is serving through our Caneo Valley meal program. And I know you feel like, man, we just did that, but we have the next one. I just wanted to get on your calendar on November uh, the 9th. And so we're looking forward to people coming and like we did this uh, month that we're currently in is having an opportunity to put together a meal in the kitchen and then bringing it over there to serve. We also have another serving opportunity with our blood drive. Uh, we do that with American Red Cross. And again, meeting just as many tangible needs as we can in the community. That's happening on November 15th, uh, just in between services here on the campus. And so would love for you to consider that as a possibility. Our ladies, I uh, want to uh, encourage you. One of the things that we've put into place is these courtyard gatherings. And our next one for that is scheduled for November the 2nd. And I uh, want to just make sure that that's highlighted for the ladies in our church as well. Well, so grateful for your faithfulness through these months of uh, trial and challenge, just supporting the church financially. Just a reminder, you can continue to do that, whether it's on our church app, whether it's the church website, uh, or mailing in a check to the church. Uh, any of those options work uh, perfectly. I'm excited for this uh, evening, or actually, regardless of what time you're watching it, this evening is where I'm at, but we have a chance to hear from God's Word, and so I'm going to turn over our time to Mr. John Irwin as he continues in our study. When we talk about the idea of believing, have you ever thought what that really means? When someone says, I believe, I believe in God, I'm not so sure about like spiritual things and churches and religion but they say, I believe. What does that really mean? Do they believe that there is a God? Does that mean that they are a Christ follower? So what kind of belief does it take to really understand the gospel? And so what we're gonna look at in this passage uh, today is in John 4, we see this movement of belief that uh, moves into faith and ultimately a commitment to God. So let's take a look at where belief 
and faith intersect. So uh, jump in the text with me, would you? In John chapter four, and in your notes, you're gonna need these. Uh, so if you're watching at home, uh, go ahead and pause uh, the tape and uh, take a look at these, all right? First of all, faith begins with believing, and we see the return of Jesus in verse 46 of John chapter four. Therefore, he came to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, remember what's significant about being in Cana. That's where Jesus' first miracle was, right? The, the water into wine. And so he's back at the same place where he did his first miracle, and this royal official is some 15 to 20 miles away in Capernaum. His son is sick. He's dying. He's hoofing it up to Cana to see if Jesus will then come down and heal his son. Now, we don't know who this guy is. They just call him a, a royal official. He could have worked for Herod Antipas. Some think he could be uh, Chusa, Herod's actual steward, mentioned in Luke chapter 8, verse 3. But what we see in this idea of believing is how the gospel is, is evolving. In, in John chapter three, he goes to Nicodemus, a Jew, and there's a spiritual conversion. Then the last couple of weeks, we saw what happened in John four with the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. And then here at the end of John four, we see a Gentile hearing the gospel. And so it actually follows the same pattern as Acts 1.8, but you shall be uh, my disciples in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So the bottom line is that Jesus is healing this young kid's son. That's the plan. That's what the man is asking. Now, some have confused this and said, this is the same healing of the centurion's son, thinking it's the same passage in Matthew chapter 8 or Luke chapter 7. But there are several differences. The centurion's son uh, isn't a son. It's a slave and the royal official has a son. That slave is suffering from paralysis. This kid's suffering from a fever. Uh, the centurion's from Capernaum. The royal official's right there in Cana. And the, and the differences go on and on. And if you want to know all the differences, you can go on the website and download the notes, and you can see all of those. But there's a, an important request in verses 47 to 49, and you see this plea from a desperate father. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him, this is the royal official, and he was imploring him, and just circle that in the text, literally begging him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, this idea of begging, it's not a casual thing, but an insistent thing. It's the desperate act of a father. And any of us who have had a kid with a 104 degree temperature, and they're, you know, three months old, and you're packing them in ice and you're hoping that, that this kid is gonna recover from this fever. You are nervous, especially if you're first-time parents. So we, so we don't know the age of this kid, but his belief is driven out of desperation, not devotion to Jesus. And that's an important distinction to make as you look at this progression of belief in this text. And so his goal is to not obtain eternal life his goal is the physical healing of a dying child. It's kind of like if your kid had cancer, you want to go to the best oncologist you can possibly find because you don't care whether insurance covers it or doesn't cover it. You're going to the guy who can make a difference. And that's what this guy sees Jesus as. It is also interesting to note that if Jesus had, a, if this guy believed that, that um, Jesus could heal him, 
He didn't take that belief farther down the road to say, well, what if he died? Could he raise him from the dead? Because there's no evidence that Jesus has done that or would do that. And so we start in this belief progression. And when you're talking with people who have this fuzzy idea of believing in God is they need to start with an acknowledgement of a need. You have to acknowledge the fact that you need God in your life. And so it starts with that, and that's what this guy did. But there's a problem, and Jesus gives a very curious response to this desperate, pleading father. Look at verse 48. He says to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Jesus is kind of bummed by the fact that people demand that he perform miracles before believing him, and he's more than a miracle worker. He, he's the Messiah. Now, you think he's like kind of taking on the man, but he's actually taking on the crowd who had gathered to see this miracle. News travels fast, and that you word is a plural term, meaning he's addressing the Galileans in general. And they, they asked around, they, the crowd had gathered, they're hoping to see a miracle, and instead Jesus gives them a little sermonette. And This is a reoccurring theme in Jesus' ministry. He's not there just to do miracles. As one commentator said, that was just kind of, the crowd was kind of a superficial, curious, thrill-seeking, non-saving, sign-based interest. That's not the kind of belief that, that Jesus is interested in. It makes me think about my own belief and how I approach God. I think these people wanted him to jump through a hoop. And I think sometimes we want God to jump through our hoop, whatever that that thing is that you're so desperate for God to do, but he'll move and do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, in his timing. In this case, he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. His time hasn't come. He wants to do a private miracle, and he, he doesn't want to, you know, cave to the crowd who's looking for, you know, kind of this magic man uh, to do his thing. But the guy persists. Look at verse 49. The royal fisher said to him, sir, and you can almost imagine the pleading, the desperation in his voice, come down before my child dies. So the father continues to to seek help from Jesus. He ups his game. He calls him sir, which is another idea for Lord. And he changes, it's not his son anymore. He calls him his child. This is a a more loving fatherly description. So he's pulling out all the stops to pull at the heartstrings of Jesus to do something. Well, here's Jesus' response in verse 50. He says to him, go. Go? What do you mean go? Go, your son lives. And it says very simply, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. So he promises the boy is going to live. And with no tangible proof, the guy took him at his word, and he starts off for home. Now, all faith has some component of of believing. And so look at the scripture on the screen here, Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him, he must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So in this faith journey, I believe there has to be an acknowledgement and there has to be a belief that God is who he says he is and he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. That's the first step. And so 
the crowd is listening on, yeah, for sure. He's going to heal him. Can't prove it. I mean, how, how can you trust this guy? They're kind of probably wondering, is this really happening? And yet this persistent father just takes off. Now, it's also interesting to note that there's no entourage with this guy. I would have thought he had a whole bunch of people traveling with him, but it looks like he's a solitary individual and he just takes off. And now he's got a 15 to 20 mile hike back to Capernaum. But Jesus, again, doesn't want to make a scene. And so he just kind of pushes the crowd away, but quietly does what he says he's going to do. Well, what are the results in verses 51 to 54? We see this physical restoration of the boy in verse 51. It says, and as he was going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour in which he began to get better. This is so cool. Then they said to him, yesterday, so now it's a whole nother day. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew, the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. So the guy's making his way back home. The servants you're going to see are going to make their way to him. This is an interesting deal. So let's leave this scene and imagine what's going back down in Capernaum with the servants. So from the servant's point of view, their master's son is dying. And if you're working for your, the big boss, you cannot let this kid die on your watch, right? That, I, mean, I think about my wife and I were watching our grandkids. She's a very you know, safety-conscious grandma, right? And our grandkids can be wild. And she'll say, John, you got to, like, rein them in. And the kind of inside, you know, gallows humor is, yeah, the kids can't die on our watch, right? Uh, they got to be alive when, the, when mom and dad come home. Well, that's what they're thinking, right? Something's happening to this kid. If something does, his fever is spiking. He's dying before our very eyes. He's deteriorating. They're losing hope. They wonder how in the world will the master respond if he's dead when he comes home? And then, boom, the child's fever breaks like miraculously. They're going, was it the washcloth? You know, I knew it was that, you know. No, they don't have any idea why it happened. They don't have any clue what happened. They don't know the timing of this. And so they say, we got to hoof it. We got to get back and let him know because he's probably worried to death, right? So they're going this way and, and the royal fishers are going this way and they're going to meet on the road. Now he does the calculation, he does the math. He says it's the seventh hour. It's 1 p.m. when this fever breaks and people calculate it. It would only take the guy five or six hours to, you know, depending on how fast he's walking, to, to go the 15 to 20 miles. For me, that would have been more like eight, nine hours, but you know, this guy could move, all right? But it says yesterday, that means that he stayed in Cana. He didn't actually go immediately home. Maybe he had friends up there. That's some gutsy dad because, okay, he says he's healed. He's healed. I'll get there when I get there. And so I think that this proves that he had real faith in what Christ said to him, and so he didn't have to rush home. So it, this is an interesting passage that comes next because we see the spiritual redemption, not just the healing of the boy with the family in verse 53 and 54. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now this is where it gets a little controversial, all right? 
So I look at this and I'm asking you, what does the text mean when he says he believed? Does he believe that there could be a miracle that Jesus could heal him? Or is it something deeper than that? Those who say that this isn't a salvation experience will say, see, there's no mention of sin. So how can this be a salvation kind of belief? Others would say, hey, the thief died on the cross and, you know, with Jesus, and he said, you'll be with the paradise. There's no mention of sin with him. Acts 16, 31 just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so some debate about whether he was believing in a physical healing or if there was some spiritual connection. I'm going to play my cards. I think this is the moment of truth for this man. And the reason I think it's more than just believing in a miracle that it's a salvation thing is because who else does it affect? The whole family, the whole household. That wouldn't just be the immediate family. That'd be all the servants and all the workers and this entourage of people, and they all believed. And so write this one down. You see it on the screen, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, the clo- I mean, Jesus' own spoken word is enough for him. Now, I, we, we've kind of gone through the text, but what's most important to, today as we look at this is this intersection of belief and faith. You know, that passage in James that says, you believe there's a God? Well, that's great. Even the devils believe that there's a God. And so in our culture today, I think we find people at various stages in, quote, their belief. And maybe you'll find yourself today identifying in one of these three stages. The first stage is, I believe if, I believe if. This is one of those beliefs that the crowd wanted. It's predicated on a supernatural event. I'll believe if you do such and such. So the crowds who wanna see signs and wonders are in that category. I'll believe, but you gotta show me something, all right? When the apostle Thomas finally believes that Christ had risen from the dead, it's only because he did what? He had to see the evidence. He had to put his finger in his side and feel his hands. It says, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have not believed. So Jesus wants us to trust him at his word. And sometimes we, we, we want something more. We, we want a miracle of some sort. We want to believe that the Dodgers can still pull this World Series out. Well, they got to get out of the first series to get to the World Series. And so the bottom line is we want to believe that something miraculous will happen. We want to believe that any number one on Wednesday will repeat itself again and again. That's believe if we see these results. Stage two, I believe you can, verse 50. I think intellectually the man believed that Jesus could do what he said, but it was a belief in an idea initially. It's a belief in his words. Theoretically, he believed, and he would hope that it would happen. So I think the second stage of belief is, I believe you can. And that's a great step towards moving towards saving faith, but it's not saving faith. Then the third stage, this is where he ultimately gets to and what we have to do, it's I believe in spite of. It's the final stage. We see it in verse 33. I believe and I'm gonna give you my life and I'm gonna influence my whole household. I'm gonna surrender to you. I'm gonna make you Lord. And it changes everything. Ultimately, the Samaritan woman surrendered to that kind of belief. Nicodemus surrendered to that kind of belief. The nobleman surrenders to that kind of belief. 
And that's a belief no matter what. No matter what the circumstances, I'm going to trust you with my life. I made that kind of belief decision on January 8th, 1963 as a young little first grader in a little Christian school. And that made a big difference in my life. It changed my life. I knew what it meant to believe. Now, I think it's interesting, and I put it in your text, not because we're going to spend a ton of time covering it, but in, in your outline, and I hope you've, you've printed it out, I wanted to remind you, look at all the cool things happen when you believe. And I want to remind you that this is the book of belief, right? Over 100 times the word belief or believe is used in the Gospel of John. And so what happens when you believe? And I've printed them out for you. I'm just going to quickly go over them. First, you become a child of God in chapter one. Then you obtain eternal life, John 3, 15 and 16. You avoid judgment. You partake in the resurrection and life. You receive the Holy Spirit. You're delivered from spiritual darkness and you're empowered for spiritual service. Now, aren't you glad that you have those all printed for you because you're not writing frantically to, to write all that stuff down? But where I want to land the plane today is, why is it? And I'm going to look at my audience here. Why isn't it that, that people just don't believe? For, for you watching, when you think about your faith journey, what kept you from believing? I'm, I'm in so many interesting conversations these days. People are interested in talking about spiritual things. But yet I find there are all kinds of objections to belief that we're talking about, this saving faith kind of belief. Let me give you some that I've come up with. I'm going to give you five. I think there could be 25, but we don't have enough time today to cover all of them, all right? I'll give you the big five. Number one, this lack of exposure or information. There are some people who just really haven't heard much about Jesus. They didn't grow up in a Christian home. And um, that's kind of like John the Baptist when he told Andrew, you know, he needed to hear his words, all right, when, when Andrew heard. How about this perceived lack of evidence? Sometimes you deal with intellectuals. They, they've, they've heard the claims of Christ, but they want more evidence. And sometimes it's intellectual. Sometimes uh, they just need more information, uh, like we said in the first one. Now, John wrote this gospel. Remember in John 20, 31, he said he wrote that all men might come to believe in Jesus as the Christ. So the people of Nazareth don't believe, so they, they see very few miracles. But more than those two, this third one, I see it often. Just people are stubborn. They have hard hearts. I think the religious leaders are in this category. They exhibit this kind of self-righteous unbelief, and they would need to change their hearts. But they were so conformed to these external standards. They didn't want to believe the truth of John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They didn't buy it. A bigger one than that one is this idea of theology versus morality. I remember Josh McDowell, most of you may not remember who he was, famous apologist, said this, that most people don't have a theological problem with God. They have a moral problem problem with God. And in their rebellion, it's easier to change your theology than, cha than change your morality. And so sometimes uh, Christians who have just sinned badly and they've what we call backslidden or fallen away are just miserable because they know the truth. 
but rather than yielding to the truth, they, they change their theology to accommodate their morality. And then the last one is, and this is the one that I might hear more often today than I've ever heard before. And that is, they blame God for either the generalized suffering or evil in the world or their own pain and suffering in their own life. And so they see this evil in the world and they don't understand why God doesn't step in. Why hasn't he solved COVID? Uh, their child dies of cancer and they blame God for not healing him. They were in a disastrous marriage where their spouse cheated on him and they, they were faithful and they're like, I didn't deserve this. And you can imagine uh, others, uh, here's another one, uh, they live in chronic pain and they can, they're just, they're debilitated by it. And, and just year after year, they live with it and they're not healed. And so their pain or their suffering or what they see in the world trumps all other viewpoints. And they miss the fact that God sent his son to die and pay for a world that is suffering, that is far from God. I'm sure you could think of many others for why people don't believe. Some think there's more than one way to get to heaven. Uh, they haven't really sought them out. They're blinded by Satan. There's all kinds of other reasons. But today I want to ask you a simple question. Where are you on the belief journey? We've talked an awful lot about who God is, who Jesus is, what belief is, but ultimately the kind of belief that we're talking about tonight, today, whenever you're listening to this, is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and paid the penalty for those sins. And that the belief we're talking about is that you entrust him with your life and you say to him, Lord, I acknowledge I need you. I need a savior. I need rescuing. And so when we get to that point, all the adversity in our life kind of, okay, in that perspective, God is the one who understands that. He's the one who can rescue me. I want to close... and I want you to think about this as I read this little final little piece from a guy by the name of Max Lucado. Maybe you want to just close your eyes as I listen and think about these words. It goes like this. Jesus lived the life we could not live and took the punishment we could not take to offer the hope we cannot resist. Why? Jesus was angry enough to purge the temple, hungry enough to eat raw grain, distraught enough to weep in public, fun-loving enough to be called a drunkard, winsome enough to attract kids, weary enough to sleep in a storm-bounced boat, poor enough to sleep on the dirt and borrow a coin for a sermon illustration, radical enough to get kicked out of town, responsible enough to care for his mother, tempted enough to know the smell of Satan, fearful enough and persistent enough to sweat blood, but why? Why would heaven's finest son endure earth's toughest pain? So that you would know that he is able. He's the one you run to. He's the one you cry to, to those who are being tempted and tested and tried. So whatever you're facing, he knows how you feel. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I I confess you tonight, sometimes my belief wavers and I don't fully trust you. I want to. But Lord, I want to have the kind of faith that I trust you 
and believe that it's done. And I ask that everyone who's listening right now evaluate what kind of belief do you have? And Lord, would you bring them to that saving faith, just like we're seeing throughout the gospel of John as we study. May we have that kind of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Well, friends, thanks again for joining us online. And, you know, Jesus really does have the power to redeem. And I don't know what situation you find yourself in today where you're trusting desperately for him to work in your life, to answer a prayer, but he can do it. And may we place our trust and hope in him and then walk away knowing that it's done. We'll see you again next week.